This is Truth Encounter, and we're in the midst of a powerful discussion about Deuteronomy chapter 11, where Moses is reminding his people about God's strong judgment against Dathan and Abiram when they turned against Moses. If you feel a little rebellious streak coming on, it might be wise to listen for the next few minutes as we join our Truth Encounter study leader, Dave Wurtson, for the conclusion of the blessing and the cursing. Now, how does God react to rejecting his kingly word, jumping out of the roles that he has for us, and then becoming real negative and bitter and inciting others to get involved in that movement of insurrection. Notice what the Lord does in this chapter in, in Numbers. It's the next day they all gather together in verse 16. It says, you and all your followers are to appear before the Lord tomorrow. Each man with his censer is exactly what happened. It says that as they did that in verse 18, so each man took his censer, put fire in it, and Moses and Aaron, they all met at the entrance of the tent of meeting. When Korah had gathered all of his followers in opposition to them at the entrance of the tent of meeting, the glory of the Lord appeared to the entire assembly. The Lord said to Moses, separate yourself from this assembly so I can put an end to them at once. Now, don't read this, you know, without entering in. This is an incredible picture. You talk about a cowboy football game, this makes competition in an NFL football team look like nothing. I mean, this is serious opposition. On one hand, you got Moses and Aaron, and Aaron and his sons are there in all their priestly paraphernalia. They've got the ephod on, they've got the robe, they've got their incense burners. Over here, you've got the other team, the sons of Korah, Dathan and Abiram, and 250 of these leaders are all gathered with them, and they're hissing at each other. I mean, it's really intense. The glory of the Lord comes down upon this tabernacle, and the Lord speaks to his prophet and says, I'm going to destroy the whole nation. I mean, I am tired of rebellion. I'm tired of negativism. I'm tired of a bitter spirit. I'm just going to burn out the whole nation. Now, God wasn't really going to do that. You say, well, why did he talk to Moses like that? Because God wanted us to learn. One of the ways that we learn is by hyperbole. The Lord used it constantly. You see, the Lord shows us, man, this is serious stuff. It's not just fun and games. This is really serious Rebelling against a king is like treason. If someone commits treason against the United States of America, it's serious. The FBI gets involved. You'll be in federal court. And it's not just a little comedy routine. It gets heavy. If you kids sign up for the military and you end up out there down here in Waco getting trained and, and you just you know, leave the troops and, and you side with the enemy and you give some of the secret information that they've taught you in your training to the enemy, it's not fun and games. It's serious. And our culture's lost sight of that. In fact, some of our young people go away to situations like that, and all their life, you know, there hasn't been any of this kind of serious, hey, there's some things that you can't do without, without the wrath of the nation coming down upon you. We've lost that in our culture, and that's what this chapter is troubling to even speak on, because in some ways I, I feel like I'm speaking about things that we just don't quite connect with. And I would never come up with this chapter, I guarantee you, if we didn't come through every teaching of the verse. Because this is not an easy thing to bring before my own attention, to bring before you. 
but there's this massive, con- this massive confrontation. And Moses says, no, you're not a God that, that would take the life of the innocent. Not everyone's been involved in this. That's always the way it is. Things always seem exaggerated. He says, not everyone's been involved in this. He said, we're all going to deal with the guilty. And Moses interceded like he always did with a gentle heart. And he appealed to the Lord God of heaven. The Lord God of heaven, he says, okay, he says, Moses, tell all the people that are innocent to get away from those families. Tell them to get away from those people. Get away from Dathan and Abiram and all their families. Get away from Korah. And so the people separated from them. And suddenly there was this gigantic earthquake. The earth opened up and swallowed Korah and Dathan and Abiram and their followers. You say, David, what? Yeah. You see, God is a king. Remember we've learned that we need to fear him? Now I want to share something with you. God, this wasn't just a one-time deal. If you study the book of Numbers, you find out that this negativism started as soon as they were delivered through the Red Sea. They had a great big celebration. They had a great big praise time. And then right away on the outskirts of the camp, they started being negative against Moses and Aaron, against the Lord's anointed. They began to turn away from the word of God. They began to want to change their roles. And the Lord would, would minister to them, was patient with them. But he who being many times reproved, and they continue to harden their neck, the Lord says they will be cut off and that without remedy. At the founding of the nation, the Lord dealt with a very strong blow against insolence, against disrespect of his word and of of, of the plan that he had for his people and the rejection of his goodness, and he dealt with it with a firm hand. You know what? He did the same thing at the beginning of our movement called the church. Ananias and Sapphira, remember that? The Lord cut them off at the very beginning of our movement, the church, because we need to reverence the Lord our God. And so we come to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 11, now that you have that story in mind. And let's see how Moses used it to teach the next generation. He says in verse 6, And what he did to Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, the Reubenite, when the earth opened its mouth right in the middle of all of Israel and swallowed them all up, their households, their tents, every living thing that belonged to them. But it was your eyes that saw all these great things that the Lord has done. Therefore, I want you to observe all the commands I'm giving you today so that you may have the strength to go in and take over the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess, and so that you may live long in the land that the Lord swore to your forefathers to give to them and their descendants. It is a land flowing with milk and honey. The land you're entering is not like the land of Egypt from which you have come, where you planted your seed and irrigated it by the foot as if a vegetable garden. But the land that you're crossing the Jordan to take possession of is a land of mountains, a land of valleys that drinks the rain from heaven. It is a land that the Lord your God cares for. His eyes are upon it continually from the beginning of the year to the end. How did the Lord God drive home this lesson of Abiram and Dathan and Korah and their rebellion? He did this. He says to his people, they were wrong. God's land really is a good land. God really is a loving God. 
And the Lord said to these people, the land that I'm going to bring you into is not going to be a land where you have to irrigate it the way you would a vegetable garden. You see, in the land of, of the Nile, the whole culture depended upon the flooding of the Nile every year. And the farmers would work out this very intricate irrigation system. And a lot of that irrigation system would be controlled by your feet. In other words, what you would do is you would build up earthenworks, small earthenworks that would keep the water in certain troughs. And the, and the farmer would go by and he'd either build that earthenwork up or he would cut it down and let the water drain into its field. If you've been out in West Texas, where Albert Bauckham worked all of his life to get away from that kind of irrigation farming. Right, Albert? You hated that. Up in Nebraska, where Mary's mom and dad are from, uh, during these hot summer months, there's not enough rain, and everything's done by irrigation. And the teenagers, uh, that's how, how they earn money during the summer. They go and help the farmers throw these sluices and throw the gates and, and put the water where it needs to go. And it's a lot of work. And you can guarantee that every farmer in his right mind would say, I'd rather be able to depend upon the faucet of the heaven than my feet pushing dirt around through these canals. And what the Lord is saying is, I'm, I love you. I'm going to take you into a land where I'm going to pour out my blessings upon the land, upon the land and I'm going to pour rain upon your good land. And it's not going to be like Egypt, where you have to work like crazy and use your foot just like you're doing a little vegetable garden. I'm just going to dump it from the heaven upon you. And so what he's telling them is, unlike what Dathan and Abiram said, God is a good God. He's a generous God, but he's also a moral God. He wants to pour out his blessings upon us, but as he pours out his blessings upon us, his blessings produce ethics in our life. They produce right in our life. And so what Moses is trying to get this foundational generation to understand is that, is that God needs to be respected. His leadership that he's put over the nation needs to be honored. When they're in tune with the word of God, which Moses was because he was inspired, the people need to be obedient to them. They need to play the roles that God has given to them. And then they need to be very careful to generate a thankful spirit about the good land and about the blessings of that good land. By the way, all of America for many years has rushed to the state of California. Why do they do that? Because in our culture, it's like the dream was in California because it's a good land. In other words, it's a varied land. When I went to high school with kids from, from California, they would brag to us. They were a people set apart, kind of like Texans. And they would brag to us about the fact that they would go swimming at the beach in the morning and then they would go skiing up in the Sahara Nevadas in the, in, the, in the afternoon. And they'd brag to us about the good land. They'd speak to us about the beautiful uh, vineyards up around San Francisco. And they'd brag about their mountains and brag about their ocean. You know what? The Holy Land, the land of Canaan, is a lot like the state of California. In fact, my Israeli friends, when they come to visit the United States, they all want to go to California because when they get in California, they feel really very much at home because there's desert in the south, mountains in the north, and agricultural land in between. And there's the ocean on the west and the mountains on the east. And they love it. It's very similar to the good land that the Lord had for his people. But you know what the Lord told them in the book of Deuteronomy? He says, if you disobey me, if you disobey me, then I'm going to shut off the faucet. 
Because unlike what modern science tells us, that nature is just impersonal, that it just rumbles along and, and man's technology can control it, which is a very dominant idea in a lot of our minds. It's a dominant idea that can control my thinking. The book of Deuteronomy tells us in chapter 11 that the Lord God controls the rain, he controls the drought, he controls the thunder and lightning, he controls the ocean, he controls the seas, he controls the heavens. And he promises Old Testament people, he promised them, if you obey me, you'll have rain when you need it in the fall. You'll have rain to finish out your crops in the spring. And you'll have blessings. But if you disobey me, if you disobey, then one of the ways that I will discipline you is by drought. In the book of Hosea, this is one of the major themes. The northern kingdom moved away from worshiping and honoring the true God of heaven. The very first thing the Lord did is he took away their agricultural prosperity. He took away the balance of the rain and the sunshine. And he did it to warn the people about the fact that they were wandering away from the living God. I think we need to be very, very careful not to make judgments about who was righteous and who was wicked. In fact, the Lord Jesus himself, when, it, when a, a gigantic tower fell on a group of people and, and took their lives, he says, don't you say that they were more wicked than you are. And that's why, you know, they got the tower fall on them and, and, we, and you're well. He says, don't do that. And in fact, the Lord implied, if it wasn't for his mercy, all of us would have the tower fall on us. But I believe Moses is telling us this. As the people of God, your heavenly daddy really is in control with the forces of nature. You know what the, book, the scripture tells us? The book, of, the book of Revelation described at the end of time, the Lord God of creation is going to shake creation. He's going to use creation as a disciplining tool. He's going to use it like a disciplining rod to try to get people to wake up. There's going to be drought, there's going to be flooding, there's going to be gigantic natural disasters. You know why? Because the Lord God will not be laughed at. There is a God that controls the rain. And right now, nature doesn't follow his perfect heart will because there's a twist in it because of our sin, but it's not outside of his hands. And when you look at the total world scheme and the whole universal scheme of creation, I want you to know that the God that you said, give thanks with a grateful heart, give thanks to the Holy One, He really is that Holy One. And you have an awesome ministry to be a priest, to pray for your family, to pray for your land, to pray for your world. And you say, well, Dave, does God open the earth and destroy those that disobey him? Not too often. Aren't you glad? I should get an amen for that one. Aren't you glad God doesn't? Because I would have been in the hole. And so would many of you. God only does it very, very seldom to give us powerful lessons. But I want to share something with you. All Dathan and Abiram and Korah experience was the loss of physical life in some kind of a divinely ordained earthquake. You say, Dave, does God ever do that today in a different way? And I want you to turn and close into some verses that you would never expect to connect with the earth opening up and swallowing rebels. 
You never think of connecting these verses with number 16, but they're connected. John chapter 3, verse 16. You say, Dave, I know those verses. I bet you haven't looked real carefully at what comes after that. Look what it says. John 3, verse 16, it says this. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that anyone who believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Everyone think, whose word is this? Is this my word? No. This is the word of God. This is equivalent to the inspiration of the Spirit blowing through Moses in the book of Deuteronomy. And now he's blowing through the Apostle John in John chapter 3. And he gives us these incredible words. For God loved the world that he gave his only Son, that anyone who will believe in him, they will not perish but have eternal life. But look what he says in verse 17. For God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. God's purpose in our world today is not to open the earth and swallow people up. It's not to dangle people over the portals of hell and have them just beg him not to drop them in. God sent his son into the world not to condemn the world, that's what he's telling us. His purpose in sending the dear Lord Jesus was not to judge the world. It was to do what? It was to save every single one of us. Because every single one of us has been insolent at one time or other against the word of God. We've disrespected God's authority. Every single one of us has jumped out of the roles at one time or other that God has had for us. Every single one of us in our hearts at times has griped against God and been bitter against him and had a really negative attitude and just wanted to forget the whole thing of, of this business of being with God's people and joining together with his people and thanking God. Sometimes there's not an ounce of thanksgiving in my own heart. But God didn't send his son into the world to condemn us. He sent him into the world to save us. It says, anyone who believes in him is not condemned. But notice these words. If you believed in him, you are not condemned. But notice what it says next. But whoever does not believe, if you do not depend upon what the Son of God did for you on Calvary, if you do not depend on, I don't want anyone to hear the words of the Holy Scriptures and be raised hearing it, without understanding very clearly what God has revealed. If you have believed that Jesus died for you, if you have depended upon his resurrection, then you are not condemned. You need to rejoice in there is no condemnation. And you don't need to be afraid of the earth opening up. And you don't need to be afraid of hell. And you don't need to worry about eternal flames that are kind of like flames, only different. You don't have to worry about darkness that's kind of like darkness, but it's much worse. You don't have to worry about alienation that, that's kind of like alienation, only it goes to a deeper level of separation. If you've trusted Christ, you have forever escaped those pits. But John tells the truth, and he adds, but the one who does not believe stands condemned already. Why do they stand condemned? Because God doesn't want to reach them? Because God doesn't love them? No. It says they stand condemned because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. He says this is the verdict. 
The light, that's Jesus Christ, has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. I want you to know, as C.S. Lewis says, that the gates of hell are locked from the inside. The gates of hell will be locked forever from the inside. People will be in hell because that's what they wanted to have. Deep in our soul, I spoke a little bit about the rebellion against leadership that can develop in my heart and in your heart. I talked about the desire to jump out of the roles that the Lord has for us. There's a part of me and there's a part of you that wants to follow that pattern. And across this world, like as the kids go to school and as we go to work, you're going to be rubbing shoulders with people that deepen their soul. And our society doesn't believe this anymore, but it's still true. The heart of man is deceitful above all things, and it's desperately wicked. And it does not choose to obey God and his moral commandments. And the Lord says, because you didn't receive the light, the light shined upon you, but you didn't want to receive it. The light shone into your life, and you didn't want to respond to it. You, you loved your darkness. You love that rebellion against God. You love that sin. You love that pet thing in your life. The Lord says it's someone that goes through a lifetime of continually rejecting the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It says there will be darkness because when you take away the light, all that's left is darkness. And John says, everyone who does evil hates the light. They will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it might be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. Is there going to be another time when the earth opens up? No, it's not going to be the earth that opens up the next time. It's going to be a lake of fire that opens up. The book of Revelation chapter 20 says that anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life will be cast into the lake of fire forever and ever and ever. Those are hard words and hardly anybody believes it anymore. But it's still true. And it means that every single one of us today, you need to ask yourself deep in your soul, have I come to that place where I have said, Jesus, I depend upon you alone for my salvation. You died to take away my rebellion, to forgive me for it. If you've come to that place, I want you to know he did it, and you're safe as you sit there today. And I want you to rejoice in that safety. If you've come to that place in your life where you believe that Jesus rose again, that you believe the tomb was empty, and you say, Dave, I believe that when I die, I'm going to go and live with Jesus because he rose again, I'm going to conquer death. If you've come to the place, you might not know when that is. It doesn't make any difference. If you know deep in your soul that you made that commitment, you are safe. Because the light has shone upon you and you've responded to it. And so I don't want any of the little children... I don't want any of our teenagers, I don't want any of our adults to hear about Dathan and Abiram having the earth swallow them up, hearing about the lake of fire. I don't want any one of you that have genuinely come to that place where you've opened your heart to the Lord to be personally afraid about that. I want us to weep for our friends. 
I want us to get really burdened about those that we're not sure about because it's serious. And we should have really tender hearts. We should never talk about hell like, boy, just send them there. Because it should be us. And that's the way we should think about it. But I also want you to realize if the light is shown upon you and you have continually turned away, you say, David, I sit there, I know what you're talking about. I've heard the Holy Spirit talking to me about this many times. And I haven't softened. I haven't let him have it. I haven't depended upon him. I'm too, I don't want to. If I don't, I don't like what you're saying, I'm going to just do it my own way. I'm going to try to be good. I think that makes a lot more sense. And this whole stuff about Jesus taking my place and Jesus rising again and, and having to depend upon Jesus like a little child, I don't like that. I'm going to do it my own way. If that's the way you feel, then I want you to know from the depth of the Word of God, the light has shown, and you stand condemned. You say, Dave, are you condemning me? No, I would never condemn you in a million years because I deserve to stand right where you stand. I am not forgiven and I am not declared not guilty because of any little thing that I've done at all. I stand with you. I would never condemn you. But there might be one difference. I've come to the place in my life and many of those around you have come to the place in their life where they said, Jesus, I need you. I admit what I am. I'm someone that has seen the light, but deep in my soul, I tend to want to get away from it. There's just real darkness in me. It's called evil, and I admit it. But I want the light of your Son, the light of Jesus Christ, to shine into my life, and you believe. 